0: April 1994, 18-year-old Heidi Allen vanished while working a shift at the local convenience store. The investigation led to two arrests, but the question of if the state had enough to convict would keep the court system busy for the next 20 years. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crimelines, and welcome to this week's episode on a case suggested by Donna. Thank you, Donna, for sending this over so long ago that you're probably not even still listening. But if you are, thank you for hanging in there with me. This case is the disappearance of Heidi Allen from Oswego County, New York, in 1994. But it's also about the prime suspects in the case. As occasionally happens, the accused got a lot of the press coverage over the last 26 years. Much of the information from this episode comes from the court documents because a few very kind souls uploaded a lot of them to Scribd. I get asked by a lot of people, maybe one of the most common questions I get, especially from people interested in starting their own true crime podcast, is where I get all of my information. And I would say that having a paid account on Scribd is totally worth it, as is my paid subscription to newspapers.com, which is where I can access these archives without flying across the country to go to everybody's library. So they're definitely worth it, Scribd and Newspapers.com. Just wanted to throw that in there because it is a question I get asked all the time. So let's go ahead and get started with this case. In April 1994, Heidi Allen was an 18-year-old college student. She was studying at the local community college, majoring in human services with a future plan of becoming a guidance counselor. She was also working about 30 hours a week at the D&W convenience store and gas station in New Haven, New York. New Haven is a small town of about 2,800 people. It's north of Syracuse, New York, very close to Lake Ontario. Heidi had a bit of a rough patch in her teen years back in 1991 when she was 15, almost 16. She was babysitting for her cousin, Melissa, who had a baby, and she babysat for her fairly often, and eventually she ended up staying with her cousin more and more and fell into a party crowd out there. I mean, that happens with teenagers, but one time the police were called on a party that Heidi was at. Of course, they called her parents because, one, she was only 15 at the time, and two, she had her cousin's baby with her, fast asleep in a car. Heidi's uncle, Russell Sturtz, was a town justice, so he got involved in keeping an eye on this situation. Heidi's parents, Ken and Sue, were dealing with a stubborn teen, and they were struggling with it. So her uncle, the judge, recommended they file a PINS petition, and that means a person in need of supervision. This is a legal action, and you know what? There's a lot of irrelevant stuff involved in it, but the end result in this case was a sort of probation where if Heidi got caught at these parties or just getting in trouble, her uncle would be called, and then he would intervene. Not wanting her to flush her future down the toilet by being a reckless teenager, Heidi's uncle more or less kept her from being charged because they were dealing with the situation through the PINs process. And it sounds like I'm saying that he was bailing her out, sweeping it under the rug, and that's not what I mean, They were not avoiding the court system because they had filed that PINs. What it did was it allowed them to handle the situation proactively in court using the PINs petition. I won't sit here and pretend that him being a judge had nothing to do with it, but this was a legal option and they were using it. At some point in 1991, Heidi's uncle called the police and said that Heidi had information about drug dealing amongst teenagers. The police went out to her house to talk to her, and she said she did know about illicit drug use both at her school but also at these parties she had been attending. According to the deputy, Heidi then volunteered to sign up as a drug informant. So he took her picture with a Polaroid camera and filled out a three-by-five index card with her contact information on it. At some point in either late 1991 or early 1992, the officer was at the DNW to use the phone, and he dropped the card with Heidi's photograph on it. An employee found it and turned it over to a deputy, and that deputy then dropped it in the officer's mailbox at the station. It doesn't appear like Heidi ever informed in any case, or at least not any that went to trial or required her to testify. This seems like a bump in the road for Heidi. We've talked about the teenage brain and decision-making on this podcast before. She was still managing school. She played sports. She had a boyfriend. She spent one night a week at least hanging out with her older sister. She was working while she was attending school. She was really a kind and generous person. And the family really did not want her to be remembered for her teenage rebellion. So it would be years before this period of her life came out. And it actually is important to the story, or I would not be even bringing it up. But it's important later on, so we'll just put a pin in it. In mid to late 1993, Heidi moved in with her grandmother and an aunt, But the house was very close to her parents' house, so they still saw her pretty much every day. There have been a few conflicting stories about why she moved into her grandmother's house. But she had turned 18, so the reason could have been as simple as she wanted to. So on April 3rd, 1994, Heidi was living with her grandmother, and she woke up around 5.30 in the morning to head out to work. It was Easter Sunday, and Heidi's boyfriend of two and a half years, Brett Law, had spent the night with her. Heidi had to open the D&W around 6 a.m., and Brett did not like her opening alone, so he got up at 5.45 to go with her. They took their own car, since Brett did not intend to stay all day. He was just going to be with her while she was alone in those early morning hours, and then go home. Brett said that Heidi was wearing white canvas shoes, light-colored jeans, and a gray Syracuse sweatshirt. She may have been wearing a gold necklace as well. Brett hung out with her for a while. He drank a cup of coffee. He read the newspaper. And it was a little after 6.30 when he left. He said in the time he was there, a few people came and went, but none of them were alarming. None of them seemed to concern Heidi. It felt like just a very normal work shift. At this time, you couldn't pay at the pump at the station, so some people were just coming in to pay for gas. Some were coming in to get coffee or cigarettes or whatever, but it wasn't Easter Sunday so I'm sure Heidi expected it to overall be a slow shift. Brett left and went to his parents' house. At 7.38, a man coming from a Sunrise Church service stopped at the gas station. He saw Heidi behind the counter, and when he left, another man was pulling into the parking lot. This man was John Swenskowski, and he would become an important witness. John was driving at about 7.30 when he saw a beater van and remembered the plate was a New York license plate with the letters PU and with the number 55. He made note of the van because it was driving very slowly, so he passed it and then went to the D&W convenience store. John went inside, he bought two newspapers and a pack of cigarettes. He was there for only about a minute, and there were no other customers. Heidi was behind the counter, the only employee on duty, and the cash register logged this purchase at 7.41 a.m. When John left the store, he noticed the van that he had passed before had pulled into the parking lot. John had to pass the van to get to his car, so he saw a man standing near the driver's door. He passed him, and the man went into the store. The man was a white man in jeans and a T-shirt, baseball cap, pulled down low, and he had a mustache. John didn't see anyone else, but he was under the impression that the van was left on since he could smell the exhaust— And then as he started to pull out of his parking spot, he said the van began to move. It moved about three or four feet, and John had to swing around it to get out of where he parked. He assumed there must have been a second person in the vehicle to move it because he hadn't seen the other guy come back out of the store and get into the van. John then left the store. At 7.42, Heidi rang up a purchase of two packs of cigarettes to Richard Thibodeau, the man who had been driving the van. When Richard left the store, he didn't see anyone. Our next important witness was Christopher Bivens. He was headed to church when he passed by the D&W what he saw made him slow down as he passed. He said a man and a woman were leaving the store with the man holding on to the woman in what he described as a bear hug. Another man was in the parking lot, and he walked to the van that was parked right in front of the doors. Christopher could tell something was wrong because the woman who appeared to him to be in her 20s seemed to be resisting against the man who had his arm around her in that bear hug I described. The man had his back to Christopher, so he didn't get a good look at his face, but said he was a husky man probably just shy of six feet tall. The other man with him was a similar height, but appeared to have more gray hair. Believing that he was witnessing a domestic dispute that he didn't want to get involved with, he drove on. Shortly after this, David Stinson arrived at the store to buy a Sunday newspaper. There were no cars or customers around, and when he went in to the store, there was also no one behind the counter he decided to just put the $1. fifty he owed on the counter, and he looked around and called out a little just to let the clerk know that he had the money for the paper, he was leaving it on the counter, but he got no response and he didn't see anyone. While he was still in the store, a woman came in to pay for her gas, followed by another man. They looked around the store because David mentioned He had been there a few minutes already, and there was no employee. David then walked outside and saw only one car in the parking lot. It would turn out to be Heidi's car. Then he saw a sheriff's vehicle pass by, so he flagged it down, and David told Deputy Curtis that the store was empty and it seemed odd. Curtis called it into dispatch as suspicious at 7:55 according to the incident card recorded by the dispatch officer. Curtis then entered the building. Inside the store there was no sign of anything. No one was there and there was no obvious struggle, no obvious robbery. There were keys on the counter near the register, and those would turn out to be Heidi's. Deputy Curtis then moved to the outside of the store, focusing on points of entry and exit. Except for the front doors that customers used, everything was locked and there were no signs of a forced entry. Curtis then called the owner of the store, Kristen Duell and told her the lights were on, the door was open, customers were coming and going, but her employee was not there. So Kristen and her husband drove over to the store and they told Curtis that 18-year-old Heidi Allen was on shift from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. Normally, the store would be closed on the holiday so everyone could spend the day with their families but if an employee volunteered to work a holiday shift, they would go ahead and open the store. Heidi wasn't meant to be on shift that day. Another employee had originally volunteered for it, but then had a conflict, so Heidi took it over. She really did not mind working on holidays. Deputy Curtis asked Kristen to check to see if anything was out of place if it looked like anything had been stolen. Kristen opened the cash register to check in there, and it looked like the right amount of money. Of course, she's not sitting there counting it, but no one forced it open. No one had Heidi open it and grabbed cash from it. It looked totally normal. So then Kristen pulled the cash register receipts, This was not what we think of a scanner that rings up the price automatically, but the cash register did have all or at least most of the store products programmed in. So the clerk just had to hit one button for, say, chips, and it would display the price. So the register did log the amounts and also what items were purchased. According to the readout, Heidi had set the time on the register. Since this was the end of daylight savings, she had to move the clock up an hour. This showed that she arrived at 5:55. Her last sale was at 7:42 when someone bought two packs of generic cigarettes. The printout showed that the person paid with cash and received change back. So, We know this transaction was completed and not interrupted partway through. And then the next entry was Kristen opening the cash register around 8.15 in the morning with Deputy Curtis standing there. We know Deputy Curtis called into dispatch at 7.55. So this leaves a 13-minute window where something could have happened to Heidi. The window was very likely less than that because we have to account for David getting there, waiting around, flagging down the sheriff. So this is really a small window, maybe 10 minutes, that Heidi vanished. Though there were no signs of a robbery or a struggle, Heidi's keys and car being left behind and Kristen saying Heidi is a responsible employee they knew from the start something was wrong and the missing person's case began. A news bulletin went out on local channels that morning around 10:30. The police began getting phone calls from some of the witnesses that morning including Richard Thibodeau, a 48-year-old construction worker. He is the one who made that last purchase that morning. When he saw the news broadcast, he was at his girlfriend's grandparents' house for Easter. From their house, he immediately called the sheriff's department to tell them that he had been there that morning and they said they would send a deputy out to the house to take his statement. After calling the sheriff, Richard called his sister and his brother to wish them a happy Easter, and he mentioned that the sheriff was coming over to talk to him because he had been at the DW and he had seen on the news that the cashier had disappeared. The deputy came by took Richard's statement, and left. This was certainly not the Easter anyone had planned, but it's amazing how quickly the police were on this and how quickly the community mobilized that day to start searching for Heidi. While the town of New Haven hadn't personally experienced anything like this before, unfortunately, the greater Syracuse area would be rocked by back-to-back disappearances. Eight months before Heidi went missing, 12-year-old Sarah Ann Wood disappeared while out riding her bike in a town just an hour and a half from New Haven. 45-year-old Louis Lent confessed to kidnapping Sarah and told police where he left her body. So these searches for Heidi began. At the same time, police were already searching for Sarah in the area Louis Lent pointed them to. He wasn't very specific about exactly where he left Sarah's body, so there were some really wide searches for her. Some of Heidi's family members actually participated In those searches for Sarah, unfortunately, her body has never been recovered. And then a month after Heidi's disappearance, four-year-old Kaylee Poulton was kidnapped from in front of her own home. It took two years for her body to be found, and a former neighbor was convicted in that case. But searches for Kaylee started while the searches for Heidi and Sarah continued. This is an incredibly stressful time for the entire community, for the upstate area of New York, but I'm telling you, it is just remarkable how many people turned out for these searches. Heidi's case alone involved over 1,000 volunteers searching 450 miles of roads and trails. They covered 50 square miles of terrain on foot and 25 miles of Lake Ontario's shoreline. And they found exactly nothing. Some of the searchers in this case were also witnesses, like Richard Thibodeau. On April 9th, six days after Heidi disappeared, Richard and his girlfriend Teresa went to the police command center to volunteer to help search. With them was Richard's brother Gary and his girlfriend and Teresa's brother and his girlfriend. So this was quite the group. Richard's brother Gary started talking to Heidi's boyfriend Brett because they actually knew each other. They met about four or five months before this and had seen each other several times over that time period. Gary's girlfriend Sharon And Brett's brother worked at the same hotel and restaurant called Beck's Hotel. And Gary even lived at the hotel in January and February of that year with Sharon. They were there for about six weeks while their house was being repaired after they had a major incident with their furnace. Brett was just frankly not a fan of Gary, who was 40 years old at this time. Brett told people Gary was obnoxious when he drank, so Brett would call his brother, who was working at the restaurant as a bartender, to ask if Gary was there before he came by sometimes. Gary had made a few comments to Brett about how attractive Heidi was, which made him uncomfortable because Heidi was only 18. Brett remembered Gary introduced his brother, Richard, when they were at the command center as his friend and said that the police had been talking to Richard since he was the last one to be in the store that morning before Heidi disappeared. Richard expressed his sympathies to Brett about how Heidi's disappearance was really a terrible thing, and then he walked away from the conversation and they went out searching. After they finished searching that day, the police asked Richard and Teresa to go to the sheriff's department, which they agreed to. They arrived around 4 p.m. after having dropped Gary and his girlfriend Sharon off at their house. The police interviewed Richard and Teresa for hours and asked if they could search Richard's van, and Richard agreed to it. They also went to the hospital around 11.30 that night so Richard could give blood and hair samples. He was fully cooperating. The authorities held on to the van until later the next day. They lucked out because the van had not been cleaned recently. In a search of the van, they did find some fingerprints on the glass sliding back door on the passenger side, but they did not match Heidi. They vacuumed the inside of the van and sent the contents to the FBI along with Heidi's hairbrush to see if they could do some type of hair analysis. Nothing collected in the van matched Heidi's hair. So there was zero forensic evidence connecting Richard or his van To Heidi's abduction. What the police had was their suspicion because he was the last known person to see her. Of course, they only know this because Richard volunteered the information, but he still remained a suspect due to those circumstances. There were multiple witnesses that put a van at the store, and of course, there's Christopher Bivens who said he witnessed the kidnapping. But these various witnesses didn't always describe the van consistently, and some descriptions actually excluded Richard's van, which makes you wonder, was there a second van that morning? One such witness was Darlene Upcraft, who drove by the store that morning and saw a white, rusty van she was asked if the van had any black on it, and she said no. And that didn't match Richard's van at all. His van was two-tone. It was white on the body, but the side doors of his truck and the rear doors were black. So it was essentially this huge black stripe that wrapped around the van. It's very distinctive. It is not a van where you wouldn't notice it had black on it. Whenever you see a car with doors a different color than the rest of the car, it stands out. If Darlene's memory was correct, the van she saw was not Richard's. So let's look at Christopher Biven's statement to the police. He drove by and may have seen the actual kidnapping. He initially described the men as around 5'11", almost six feet tall, and Richard Thibodeau was not that tall, and Heidi was actually either the same height as him or a little taller. Also, in his initial statement, five days after the disappearance, Christopher said he saw the two men, the woman, and the van, but he could not give a description of the van. Ten days later, when he's questioned again, He said the van was light blue with dark trim. Does not match Richard's van. Two days after this, the police drove Christopher past Richard's van, and he said it was the same style, wrong color. The very next day, they showed him a photo that showed the distinctive black side doors, and Christopher said it did not match. The next day he was shown a picture of Richard's van again. And this time he said, you know what? I think that is the one I saw. This was the third time he saw Richard's van, whether in person or in pictures, after saying the van he saw was blue, which he said after saying he didn't remember what the van looked like. So was he really remembering the van he saw that day? Or was he remembering the van that he kept getting shown. Personally, I am not feeling confident about this identification of the van at all, but I'm not the Oswego County Sheriff's Department, and they felt quite differently. They had their man, and on May 25th, 1994, just around eight weeks after Heidi's disappearance, Richard was arrested and charged with first-degree kidnapping. In New York, first-degree kidnapping requires an aggravating circumstance. There are a few to choose from, but the state's argument in this case was that the aggravating circumstance was Heidi dying during the abduction. That said, they did not bring murder charges. At the same time Richard was arrested, so was his brother, Gary Thibodeau, and Gary's girlfriend, Sharon. They were not implicated in Heidi's kidnapping yet. They were picked up on drug charges and old warrants. Gary was sent to Massachusetts to deal with a warrant out of that state. Meanwhile, in New York, Richard made bond, and he was out pending trial— Heidi's father, Ken, was infuriated that Richard was out, and he went to his house and fired a shot on June 18th. He ended up being arrested for misdemeanor menacing. Around the same time with Richard charged in the kidnapping and Gary in Massachusetts serving time for that warrant in June 1994, another witness came forward, Nancy Fabian. The police had released a photograph of Richard's van and were asking anyone who saw anything on Easter to come forward. Nancy said that she and her family were heading to her sister's house on Easter morning. Like everyone else in the story, she knew what time it was because they had to change their clocks ahead when they got into the car. It was 7.12 when they left their home. When she got to Mexico, New York, an old van came up behind her very quickly. She was at an intersection about 10 minutes from the convenience store, and the van came from the direction of the store. Nancy paid a lot of attention to this van because it came up right on her bumper, and it was making her nervous especially because then it started swerving. Because the van swerved, she did get to see the side of it, and she said it was a light blue van with a dark stripe down the side. Now, the dark stripe is what those black door panels on Richard's van looked like. And really, the difference between light blue and white On a hazy day, that may have been why she thought it was blue. In her mirror, Nancy was able to steal some glances at the driver. He was a scruffy looking white man, but that wasn't what she thought was odd. She said he was reaching behind his seat like he was pushing something down in the back. Her thought was he must have a dog in the cargo area of the van and was trying to get it to lie down. She said that at one point, he turned around pretty much all the way while he was driving, and this caused him to swerve widely. She did not see a second person in the car, but she did identify Richard's van as the one she saw. But police have Christopher's statement that two men were involved, and they believed that the second man, the one helping Richard, was his brother, Gary Thibodeau. So they decided to charge him. Gary was arrested on July 23, 1994, and charged with first-degree kidnapping. A full search of his house and property turned up the exact same things they found in Richard's van which was nothing. Rumors started going around town that Heidi had been a drug informant against Gary Thibodeau, but that piece of gossip was shut down pretty quickly by the police. This is interesting because at this point, the fact that Heidi signed up as an informant two and a half years before her disappearance had not come out yet. It wouldn't come out for years but a rumor about it was clearly going around and to the extent that the police denied it in the media at the time. What police did say led to Gary's arrest was the information of two jailhouse informants. After Gary's arrest on that Massachusetts warrant, he spent about 60 days locked up down there. While there, he befriended two men, Robert Baldassaro and James McDonald. So let's talk about why Robert and James were in jail, because I think that goes to their credibility in the sense that they didn't have a whole lot to gain by lying. James was in there for a DUI, which he could very easily, successfully plead down. Robert was in there on a probation violation, Now, there's a little bit more to Robert's story. He had written bad checks when he was down in Florida, and he got put on probation for it. He also had a charge in there for stealing appliances. So, yeah, I mean, his arrests were fraud-based, but they were six years old, and he was in there for a probation violation towards the end of his probationary period. So like James, he didn't have a need to try to get a really sweetheart deal here. He wasn't looking at spending a lot of time in jail. Now, Robert and James were already both at the Worcester House of Corrections when Gary Thibodeau arrived. James and Gary had cells right across from each other, and Robert was elsewhere but on the same cell block. The first night Gary was there, the conversation was minimal, just polite hellos. A few mornings later, Robert went to James's cell to have coffee since James had a coffee pot in there. Robert asked Gary if he wanted a cup, so the three men just sat in James' cell talking for probably about ten minutes. Of course, they do the what-are-you-in-here-for thing, and Gary said he was being held on a drug charge, but that he was really locked up because the police in New York thought he was involved in a kidnapping. James and Robert pushed him for more details, and Gary said that he and his brother had been at the convenience store and were the last ones to see the kidnapping victim so the police thought he was involved. Robert asked him basically, well, were you involved? And Gary said, no, and I wouldn't tell you if I was. They talked later that day, again in James' cell, and Robert asked Gary if he could just stand in a lineup so that the girl they thought he kidnapped could look at him and rule him out. Robert wasn't aware at this point that Heidi had not been found. Gary answered that she wouldn't be able to do that because she was dead. Robert asked how he knew that, and according to Robert, Gary said he just knew. In a third conversation, Robert said that the police could probably take fingerprints from where she had been taken and that would give them a clue as to who really did this, if it wasn't Gary. Gary said that there was no struggle, and he believed it indicated Heidi left with someone she knew. Robert also said he asked Gary how he ended up getting wrapped up in a big case like that, and Gary said that he and his brother went to the store to talk to Heidi because she was upset over something It sounds like something related to a drug deal. And they wanted to straighten out whatever it was she was upset about. Gary said they all got into the van and drove to the woods near his house and talked to Heidi. Of course, he's not giving Robert her name in this conversation. Then Gary went to his house while his brother drove Heidi back to the store and dropped her off. Then Richard left the store, but realized he forgot to buy cigarettes, and when his brother went back to get the cigarettes, no one was at the store. Now, of course, even if Gary did say this, it makes absolutely no sense, because we know Heidi was in the store at 7.41 when someone else saw her, and Robert bought the cigarettes at 7.42, That leaves literally seconds to get Heidi in the van, drive her to Gary's, talk to her, and drive her back for Richard to then buy the cigarettes. So regardless of whether Gary said this or not, it's not what happened. And then there's another conversation where Robert asked Gary how the kidnapped girl died, and Gary said she was hit in the head by a shovel and then mutilated. Robert asked Gary how he knew this, and Gary said, they're accusing me of doing it. If I was going to do it, that's how it would have been done. And then Gary walked away. Now, there were other conversations where Gary was upset because the police were messing with him, and one time he mentioned the police had found his old furnace, When he and Sharon had to replace that old furnace with a new one, they put the old one out in the yard, and they just used it to burn trash and yard waste. The police did search it, and they did find bones and charred cloth. According to Robert, Gary said he had burned chicken bones and an old rug in there, and then he asked Robert if he did burn someone, in a furnace, let's just say. Would the police be able to tell? And Robert told him, yeah, the teeth wouldn't have burned. And the police did find bone fragments in the furnace, but they back up Gary's story that they were chicken bones because these did turn out to be animal bones. Robert said that the day Gary was released from jail, he told Robert to stay quiet about what he said, and then Robert was sent to Florida in early July to return there for the probation violation. Three weeks later, he talked to two officers from Oswego County about what Gary had told him. He said he didn't call them because he didn't want to get involved, and he wasn't sure how much stock to put into what Gary said anyway, since there was no real admission of guilt. James's recounting of the conversations that happened were similar, except he said that Gary admitted his shovel was used to kill Heidi and described it as a folding metal army shovel. Gary also allegedly said he knew Heidi because they did drugs together and said that the police would never find her. James and Robert as far as I can tell as far as has been reported in the record they were not given any deals in exchange for their testimony but the informant stories with the exception of what James said about the shovel don't include Gary actually killing Heidi and there was no evidence of the shovel ever existing Gary said he never owned a shovel that was a folding metal shovel and Obviously, none was found. Not to beat a dead horse about it, but we need to remember there is zero physical or forensic evidence. Nothing that the jailhouse informants said was backed up through tape recordings or other evidence to support what they said. I mean, imagine if they even found a folding shovel on the property. They didn't even have that but the state was taking this case to trial anyway. The brothers were tried separately, and Gary's trial took place first in May 1995, 13 months after Heidi went missing. It's hard to say which case was stronger. With Gary, they had the jailhouse informants, but Richard was the only one of the two brothers they could 100% put at the crime scene that morning. It's a toss-up on which case was stronger. Gary's defense definitely took advantage of the lack of witnesses to put him at the scene. Gary claimed he was home on Easter morning, and he never even saw Richard that day. The main witnesses against Gary were all the people we've already talked about. Additionally, a few neighbors put Richard's van as being at Gary's house on Easter Sunday in the time period where Gary claimed he was still in bed. Other neighbors testified that there was a screaming argument from Gary's house around 10.45 in the morning on Easter Sunday. Another neighbor said Gary was burning things in that outdoor furnace on his property in late April or early May, and whatever was being burned smelled awful. There was also a man who came forward later saying that he saw two men carrying a large object wrapped in plastic wrap into the woods on April 6th. He believed they were Richard and Gary, but a search of the woods where he said this happened found absolutely nothing. So again, witness testimony backed up by nothing. Gary's defense focused in on this point again and again. It didn't matter what everyone might have seen. There was a complete lack of evidence backing any of it up. His brother's van being seen at his property was as close as they got, and that was miles away from the convenience store. That still doesn't put Gary at the scene or with Heidi. While this wasn't Richard's trial, Gary's defense had to show that he was not with Richard that morning. So they focused in on Richard's movements. They called Teresa Crawford, Richard's longtime girlfriend, to the stand. She heard Richard tell her son to wait on his Easter candy until Teresa woke up. Then she heard his van start, which was a distinctive sound because the starter was iffy and it took a minute to turn over. She thought it was around 7.30 that she heard this, but... She wasn't looking at the clock. He was back by 7.50 with his two packs of cigarettes. Teresa said they got ready and left to go to her grandparents' house for Easter. They passed the convenience store after 8.30 and noticed a patrol car and yellow tape. They had a quick conversation, wondering what was going on as they passed by. Then they arrived at her grandparents' house by around 9 a.m., While they were there, a news flash came on about Heidi's disappearance, and they openly talked about seeing the patrol car and the police tape. Richard then called the sheriff's department, and a deputy came to the house about half an hour later to talk to Richard about being in the store. The defense then called John and Leona Corey, Teresa's grandparents, to confirm this. They were shaky on their timeline on whether Richard was there at 9 or more like 10, but the point was that Richard was alibied by Teresa from 7.55 until they got to her grandparents' house, and they could alibi him after that. Gary's alibi witness, his girlfriend Sharon Raposa, also testified. She testified that they were woken up by Richard's phone call which she put at 10 or 10.30, but we know it was after 10.30, and Richard told them that someone went missing from the convenience store and he was going to talk to the sheriff about it. Richard did not mention Heidi's name on this phone call. Gary and Sharon then stayed at the house all day, and she said Richard never came by. Now, there was a lot of confusion about where Gary went on Easter Sunday. The DA claimed that Gary and Sharon left immediately for Massachusetts, immediately after Heidi's disappearance, and they didn't come back until April 5th or 6th. This would look a little suspicious. Now, Sharon says this wasn't true. They didn't go to Massachusetts. The DA ended up bringing Sharon up on perjury charges over this, but she was acquitted. She had a bunch of witnesses and proof that she was in New York for at least one or two of those days, they were saying she was in Massachusetts. The idea was to show that Gary left town immediately to try to get away from whatever investigation was going to come from Richard calling the police to give a statement. Even though it appears Sharon was likely telling the truth about them not going to Massachusetts, her credibility did not hold up in court, to say the least. First, she was the partner of the man on trial, and she had a motive right there to lie for him. And the time frame the police allege Richard was with Gary, Sharon admitted she was asleep for, She said Gary was there in bed when she woke up, but that still leaves some unaccounted-for time. But really, the main issues stemmed from her criminal record and from her substance abuse. She had petty larceny convictions. She was accused of welfare fraud for lying about assets and property on her application form. So the cross-examination of Sharon was swift and I can't imagine the jury put much weight into what she said. Gary decided to take the stand on his own behalf. He went over much of what we've already talked about, and he said those who saw Richard's van at his house on Easter Sunday were simply mixing up which day they saw the van. As for what he allegedly told his jailhouse friends, Gary denied some of it straight out And then in other cases, he denied the spin they put on it. Gary said anything he knew about the case, like how there was no struggle, was because of the newspapers. That fact had been published. Gary denied ever saying he and Heidi had a problem with each other or that they did drugs together or that he went to the convenience store with his brother that morning. Gary admitted that he told them that Heidi Allen would never be found, but that wasn't the end of his sentence. He said she wouldn't be found in his furnace because she wasn't in there. He never said anything to them about hitting Heidi with a shovel, and the only time a shovel came up in conversation was when they were watching TV. This is 1994. O.J had been arrested for killing Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman. A shovel had been found in the back of that Bronco that he was in during the low-speed chase. That's how a shovel came up in conversation. He didn't say anything about hitting Heidi with a shovel, and he didn't even own a shovel like what was described. Another part of Gary's defense was that he was permanently disabled after a work accident years before, and he wouldn't have had the physical ability to kidnap someone like Heidi, who was around like 5'10", 5'11", and was athletic. But then he was forced to admit on cross-examination that one of the times the police talked to him, he was actively helping someone rip down a porch. The year before, he resighted his own house, which included carrying the sighting and the boards. In short, the state is saying he's just not as physically limited as he was claiming. On June 19th, 1995, the jury took the case, and it took about three and a half hours for them to find Gary guilty of first-degree kidnapping. And he was sentenced to 25 years to life. Two days after the verdict, the company guaranteeing Richard's bond pulled out of the deal and he was taken back into custody. I haven't seen why they did this, but honestly, he was likely more of a flight risk after Gary's conviction. The state had more direct evidence against Richard, so he had no reason to believe his trial would go any differently. I can think of a lot of people who would rather take their chances on the run than with odds like this. In September 1995, Richard went on trial, and with the exception of the jailhouse informants, most of the witnesses were the same. It's interesting that they didn't try them together with different juries since so much of it was a repeat. We saw that in the John Juca trial where each defendant had their own jury, and when the evidence only pertained to the other defendant, their jury left the room. That made it a little bit easier to get all these people testifying. But that's not what they did here. They completely separated the cases. Richard's defense, unlike Gary's, managed to land a few important points. One, the timeline did not work. The really limited time Richard was known to be at the d seen driving, and then his van being at his brother's house was simply impossible. He could not have made it. He also had an alibi witness for April 6th, the day a man allegedly saw him and Gary carry a plastic-wrapped object into the woods. His lawyer then called five witnesses who said they saw his van at his house and at his girlfriend's grandparents' house, all at the times that would have made it impossible for him to also have been at his brother's house. Richard, like his brother, took the stand in his own defense. He testified that he bought the cigarettes and he left while Heidi was still there and she was fine and he didn't see anyone. That's all there was to it. He did everything the police asked of him, and even more. He helped search for Heidi. He put her missing poster in the window of his van. He was not hiding anything. In their closing statement, the defense leaned on the same things Gary's lawyer did. There was no motive, and there was no evidence. On September 29, 1995, the jury took the case. And then they acquitted Richard. Richard and his attorney didn't even try to hide their shock. They had no reason to believe they'd have a different outcome, especially since the case against Gary had 100% to do with him being with Richard that morning. How could Gary be guilty and Richard not be guilty? Of course, an acquittal is not the same thing as being found innocent. It just means your guilt wasn't proven beyond a reasonable doubt. But since Gary was only implicated through Richard and there was reasonable doubt, Richard was involved, then there's reasonable doubt Gary was involved. That's just kind of basic logic here. And Gary's attorneys sure thought so because they filed to have his conviction set aside due to this issue, but they were denied. Gary then entered years of appeals. And honestly, we're gonna skip the first 18 or 19 years because I don't have the energy for a two-hour-long episode this week. As I am recording right now, the clock just changed over to midnight. We are going to focus up and get to the 2014 appeal because that's the one... That makes you really perk up your ears and wonder what is happening here. The first issue here is a Brady violation, meaning the state withheld exculpatory evidence. You may remember I mentioned way earlier in this episode a woman named Darlene Upcraft. She saw a van that did not match Richard's van at the convenience store on Easter morning. This raised the possibility of a second van being there. And her statement was not turned over to the defense. They did get the lead sheet saying that she was interviewed. They did not get her full statement, and the lead sheet was actually incorrect. It said she drove by the store but didn't remember seeing anything because she did see a van, and even though the police kept asking if she was sure it didn't have any black on it, she maintained it did not. Gary's appeals attorneys are saying that his trial attorney should have been given this. There was another Brady claim about an alternative suspect. During the initial investigation back in April 1994, the police had repeatedly interviewed a woman named Tracy Breckenridge about the movements of her husband, Roger. Tracy said that on Easter morning, Roger left the house early in the morning and he did not come back. Until dinner time. She also told them at some point after this, she heard a conversation between Roger and a friend of his named James Steen, where James said he didn't want anything to do with the van. She actually calls James Thumper, which was his nickname. Pretty much everyone called him this, and it's what you'll see in the various statements if you go look them up yourself. Tracy said she then left the house, and when she got back, Roger was gone. She wondered if he went with James to get rid of the van, and the van, she was assuming, was the one owned by a third man, Michael Borer. So here we have a statement from someone pointing to another suspect. This was never turned over to the defense. You might think, well, they don't have to turn everything over. If something is not credible or it's not relevant, or it wouldn't be admissible in a trial, then it isn't exculpatory. But they didn't interview Tracy once. They talked to her multiple times. So what the appeals team is saying here is this shows that the police saw some value, some credibility, some relevance in what she said, and it would have been useful for the trial attorneys had they presented this alternative theory this alternative suspect, they may have had a different outcome. And so this is where we're gonna have our next set of suspects. We will call them suspects, even though the police are confident Gary and Richard Thibodeau killed Heidi. This theory is that Roger Breckenridge and James Steen did it with the use of Michael Borer's van and possibly with his participation. This isn't all that was filed in this appeal. Really, one of the central features of this appeal was a statement made in 2013 by a woman named Tanya Priest. She said that in 2006, she was hanging out with James Steen at his house with his then-girlfriend and future wife, Victoria West, when a new story about Heidi's case came on the television. She or someone else asked if Thibodeau didn't do it, who did? And James asked if they really wanted to know. He snapped at them with this, clearly not in a good mood, upset about what they were talking about. But they wanted to hear what he had to say. So James said that he, Roger, and Michael Bohr drove Michael's white van to the store and parked it out front. Michael stayed in the van while Roger went through the front door. While he had Heidi distracted, James entered the side door and grabbed her. They then dragged her to the van, and this would make James and Roger the two men Christopher Bivens saw as he drove by. James said they then took Heidi to Roger's house where Jennifer Westcott was. Now, Roger was married to his wife, Tracy, but Jennifer was his girlfriend. He eventually left the state with Jennifer at some point after this, and he and Tracy divorced. Well, James said that Jennifer was upset that they brought Heidi there, and they took her out to the garage and beat her to death. The motive was that her boyfriend owed someone money for drugs, and they were threatening him. So to protect him from these people, Heidi planned to inform the police. James said they then took Heidi's body to a cabin in the woods, cut her up, and put her in the floorboards. Okay, so it took an hour, but we're circling back to Heidi's status as a confidential informant. This would have been pretty important For Gary's trial attorney, to raise reasonable doubt, Heidi, acting as a drug informant, would make enemies. And it would be fair to believe that this was not a secret, because that deputy had dropped her photo and the card with her information. The person who picked it up and returned it may have told someone what they saw just innocently and it got out we know it was probably out in the community since it was an early rumor in her disappearance it was published in the paper this would have opened up a wide new list of potential suspects at least something the trial attorney could have explored but it hadn't been turned over so let's get back to tanya She said that she did not believe James. He had a reputation for bragging about being tougher than he was, but she still took some friends out to the woods across from where Roger Breckenridge was living to have a look around. They never found the cabin, and at least one friend has backed up Tanya's claims that they went looking for this cabin in 2006 shortly after James made that confession. So why did it take until 2013 for Tanya to come forward? For starters, she said she didn't wait that long. She said she called the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children the day after James's confession, but she didn't give her name out of fear of retaliation for herself and James's then-girlfriend, Victoria, who had also heard the statement. Then Tanya called Nick Mick again four years later in 2010 and did leave her name at this point. Syracuse.com verified with Nick Mick that the call was received. In 2010, two things changed to make Tanya feel more comfortable coming forward. Now, the first one was that Victoria and Tanya were no longer in danger of retaliation from James because he already killed Victoria and he was in prison. After an abusive marriage, Victoria left James. Several months later, he showed up at her new apartment, killing her and her boyfriend. After a seven-hour standoff, he surrendered to police. James claimed in court that Victoria had left their daughter in the care of a known child abuser and he was under extreme emotional distress. But as the DA pointed out, his emotional distress didn't cause him to go pick up his daughter from this supposedly abusive situation. Instead, he went and shot Victoria and her boyfriend just four days after she told him the marriage was over for good. Now, the second thing that happened that made Tanya willing to call Nick Mick and give her name in 2010 was the death of her own husband in a motorcycle accident. His death was ruled a drunk driving accident, but Tanya believed that he had been murdered by members of a motorcycle gang. She was frustrated that what she believed was the truth wasn't coming out. And it made her think of how Heidi's family must feel not knowing exactly what happened to her. So she knew she needed to come forward. Though Tanya contacted Nick Mick, she didn't see anything happening in the case. So she eventually tried to contact Gary Thibodeau's appeals attorney. She ended up, though, getting in touch with the new Oswego County DA first and he flew her to New York to make a formal statement in February 2013. One of the things the police had Tanya do was make a phone call to Jennifer Westcott shortly after making her formal statement, Jennifer being Roger's then-girlfriend who allegedly saw Heidi with the men the day she was killed. So would Jennifer back up what Tanya was saying? On the call, which was recorded, Tanya mentioned the things she knew about the murder of Heidi, and Jennifer agreed with her, but it was largely a passive agreement. It was a lot of just saying, "Uh uh-huh, to what Tanya said. She did contradict her a little bit, though. Tanya mentioned the three men showing up with Heidi, and Jennifer said, yes, but... She said Heidi stayed in the van. Tanya said James said that they brought her to the garage to kill her, and Jennifer said she didn't know about that. She didn't know anything about Heidi being killed. So based on this phone call, Jennifer really couldn't back up what Tanya said. In 2014, the police did search the area where Tanya said, James said, Heidi's body was first taken to a small cabin. They found a fallen down structure on that property, but the deputy said it was more the size of a shed rather than a cabin, but they did search it with dogs and nothing was found. They then found a second nearby collapsed building that appeared to be more consistent with the size of a cabin. And they did find a bone there, but it was determined to be an animal bone. So the DA was exploring Tanya's story. In the end, he couldn't really find anything to back it up. And he did have a few reasons why he didn't think Tanya's story was necessarily credible. But the main thing is there wasn't evidence for it. But of course, Gary's appeals team is all in with this story they found other witnesses who claimed James Steen and or Roger Breckenridge bragged to them about killing Heidi and then scrapping Michael's van with Heidi's body in it. The men did work at a scrapyard, and Michael did get rid of his van around the time Heidi went missing, which is interesting, circumstantially speaking, of course. Once again, we're left with no actual proof. The three men have, of course, denied involvement in Heidi's disappearance, and they've also denied telling people that they were involved. We need to talk a little bit about Michael Borer here because he didn't act like James and Roger did, which was to basically move on with their lives, only mentioning Heidi here and there. Michael inserted himself into this investigation by actually investigating the case. And he admitted he became somewhat obsessed with finding out what happened to Heidi. And over the years, I have to say, he crossed some lines. He went to Richard Thibodeau's house and identified himself as a private investigator, hired by Heidi Allen's family. So thinking this was true, they talked to him. Except he wasn't hired by anyone. He had gone to the Allens' house, and they called the cops on him. So he was acting on his own. In September 1996, a bit over a year after Gary's conviction, Michael showed up on the prison visit log. He actually went to the prison to interview Gary. He identified his relationship on the forum as friend. Michael said he just wanted to get to the bottom of things and see if the Thibodeau brothers were guilty or innocent. These don't seem like the actions of a guilty man. The state had their conviction. They weren't worried about Michael Borer or any of his friends, not in the least. So why was he doing all of these things that could get him put on their radar? But here's another odd piece that we have to get in here in relation to Michael. Within days of Heidi going missing, her cousin Melissa was at the bar talking to her sister, and Michael Borer was there. He started asking questions about Heidi's disappearance. Melissa mentioned a bracelet she gave Heidi For graduation, that had Heidi's name engraved on it. The family hadn't found it, and Melissa wondered if Heidi was wearing it the day she went missing. Michael later consulted psychics as part of his investigation, and in his notes, he wrote that a psychic said that Heidi hid a bracelet behind the seat of a vehicle. So if it was found, her family would know she had been there. Michael knew about the bracelet, and he could have possibly fed this detail to the psychic, and the psychic then turned it into a story. But we also know that police sometimes take psychic tips seriously because they believe the person may be using the psychic as a shield for giving them information that they know for a fact. So did the psychic really say this, or is this information Michael knew either because he was there or because someone told him about it? Now, if the bracelet only comes up because it's in notes from a psychic, I would have glanced right on over it. But this piece of jewelry was found. It wasn't found in a van. It wasn't found in a vehicle. Sometime around the 10-year mark of Heidi going missing, Melissa checked her mail and found a white envelope with the bracelet in it. Fast forward to 2013, and the police are interviewing the three men in relation to Tanya's statement against them. The police do not know anything about the bracelet showing up, For reasons we could only speculate, Melissa opted not to tell the police about the bracelet showing up in her mailbox. So they did not know about this. And during the police interview with Michael Borer, he said that through his investigation, he learned that Gary or his girlfriend Sharon had mailed the bracelet to either Heidi's parents or to Sharon's parents in an attempt to freak them out. Except, Melissa got the bracelet in around 2004. Gary was in prison, he couldn't have sent it. So you might think it must be Sharon. Sharon died in 1997 during surgery. Neither of them could have mailed that bracelet. It's a mystery to this day where the bracelet was found, who sent it to Melissa, why they sent it. And I have another question that maybe the police know the answer and I just don't see it anywhere. I want to know how Michael Bohr knew the bracelet had been sent to someone. Even if he had who received it wrong, he knew it had been sent. And I'm wondering where he heard that. Now, it seems that someone who was involved in the murder and knew what happened would have kept his head down, not showing up on everyone's doorstep like this, not hiring psychics. But one of Michael's former employees testified at the appeals hearing that Michael used to threaten employees saying he would do to them what he did to Heidi. The employee was just 16 when she worked for him, so she didn't say anything, she was too nervous, and instead she just quit the job. I haven't seen a lot of backup to her claim that he did this. And if he did this to multiple employees, I would expect to see some, but not everybody wants to get involved. People move on, they move away. She may be the only one willing to come forward. We don't know. Other evidence that was presented in this appeal was that of cadaver dogs, Gary's defense team hired two dogs to go out to some of these areas in the cabins in the woods, and both the dogs got hits on the same exact spot. These were two different dogs, months apart, and my understanding is with two different handlers. However, whatever they were indicating, whatever was there, It wasn't enough physically left there to prove one way or the other what it was. They didn't find anything. Having two dogs indicate in the same spot months apart is definitely persuasive that there was something there, but there's no way to know that it was something related to Heidi's disappearance. In all, throughout this process... 14 witnesses came forward with some sort of statement to implicate James, Roger, and or Michael, including another man who claimed that he also saw the kidnapping in progress and he saw James Steen punch Heidi. But he didn't come forward until 2014. He said that... He was driving by the store, he saw the van, he saw the men, and he saw one of them punch a woman. He tried to pull into the parking lot to intervene at the time, but the roads were really slushy that day, and he slid past or he slid around. Like Christopher Bivens, he assumed it was a domestic violence situation and didn't want to get involved so he continued on his way. When Richard and Gary were later arrested, he assumed they had the right guys and, again, didn't want to get involved in the case. But then he saw James Steen's photograph in the paper in 2014 following Tanya's statements, and the man recognized James as the person he saw that day punching a woman and his wife or longtime girlfriend had confirmed, he did talk about what he saw that day over the years. So it's not like this came out of nowhere, was some repressed memory. He had discussed it before. That said, I wouldn't hang my hat on this witness identification. I believe the man was sincere, but to believe his identification was accurate We have to believe that he looked at a current picture of James Steen, mentally did an age regression, and recognized him from an incident he saw for a couple seconds 20 years before. Eyewitnesses are tricky under the best circumstances, and this is far from ideal. There was another witness who said she went to the police in 2004 and 2011 to report that members of the Breckenridge family told her that Roger and James had committed the murder, but her statements were never followed up on. Now, Michael Bohr had the fewest witnesses against him. He just had three, none of whom really pointed the finger too hard at him. One person said that Michael was drunk in a bar once and said he knew what happened and where Heidi's body was. But that doesn't mean he's saying he did it, just he knows what happened. Honestly, he could have just been referring to something a psychic told him. Another witness was his ex employee who said that he had threatened her that he would do what he did to Heidi. And then we have the recorded phone call with Jennifer Westcott. She sort of put him with James, Roger, and Heidi in that phone call, but not entirely. So what happened is Tanya mentioned Michael's name in a rather long statement about what James had told her. And Jennifer doesn't necessarily agree with it. She doesn't say, yes, that's what happened. She simply doesn't contradict it. And again, Michael's name was one thing in a big block of speech. From the transcript I saw of the call, Michael never came up again in the conversation, and Jennifer never talked about him individually. Other than being the one of the three men with a van, Michael seems to really stand out as the least likely to have been involved in this. Okay, this is as far as we're going to get into the appeal. I hit all the important highlights. I think I got everything in there. I know you probably want to get back to this week's Generation Y episode. I know I want to go to bed at some point. So let's wrap this up. You may be feeling torn on this case. It seems like they have just as much, if not more, evidence against at least James Steen than they had against Gary. The van James had access to looked more like the initial witness statements than Richard Thibodeau's van did. Had the defense had access to that information about Roger Breckenridge, that may have made a big difference in his trial. Maybe you think that Gary and therefore Richard probably did do it. The police got it right, though... Maybe his conviction is iffy because of the Brady violations and the leaning on jailhouse informants and the lack of physical evidence. Or maybe you think Gary did it 100%, he was convicted fair and square, and Richard got away with murder. Maybe you've cycled through all three of these beliefs while listening. And that's okay, because do you want to know who else couldn't agree on this case? New York's highest court. This appeal was decided in a split four-to-three decision. The decision was to uphold Gary's conviction, but the three dissenting judges dissented with vigor. The majority opinion basically said that Gary didn't deserve a new trial because there was no corroborating evidence of what James and Roger allegedly confessed to, so it wouldn't have been admissible at trial anyway. Now, the dissenting judges are saying the opposite. It would have been allowed in. After all, let's apply the same standard to Gary. His alleged confessions to the jailhouse informants were also backed up by zero Evidence. Furthermore, the two people who Gary confessed to knew each other, and they could have gotten their stories together if that is what they're looking to do. But many of the witnesses to James' and Roger's confessions didn't know each other, so it's a little more persuasive when they're coming out with the same story, saying that the men scrapped Michael's van with Heidi's body in it and that it all ended up in Canada. It also explains why cadaver dogs hit on a cabin, but no evidence was found. Tanya was told that Heidi was put in the cabin. The defense team is now saying that she was then moved into the van where they scrapped it we seem to be holding the witnesses against Gary to a lesser standard than the ones against James and Roger, and to a lesser extent, Michael. I'm stopping short of calling this a wrongful conviction in the sense that I don't know that the Thibodeau brothers were innocent. I mean, Richard puts himself there in the very small window of time Heidi went missing. On the other hand, he put himself there. He never had to come forward, but he did so, and he did it immediately. It's a little odd that he would kidnap and kill someone around 8 a.m. and then call the police on himself at 10.30 and then go help look for her, offer his hair and DNA samples, and then drive around with a missing poster in the window of the van he allegedly kidnapped her with. But they say some killers like to insert themselves into the investigation, so maybe that's what we're supposed to believe happened here with Richard. But if we accept that, we have to acknowledge that that also applies to Michael. If we're going to side-eye people who inserted themselves into the case, I think Michael rises to the top of that list. Now, all I'm saying here is that the logic of weighing the evidence cuts both ways, and we can't apply it differently to the Thibodeaus as we are the other people. So where are we now with this case? We are in the same place we were when Gary Thibodeau was convicted because there are no more appeals. Gary died of COPD in August 2018 at the age of 64 two years before his first chance at parole would have come up. The police and the DA consider this case closed. Gary did it, he paid his debt to society, and he died in prison. They are no longer investigating Heidi's case with the exception of the whereabouts of her remains. They are still actively pursuing... Any leads in that regard. Because even as we get wrapped up in the details of who said what and what happened in this case, we cannot forget the people who lost the most, the Allen family. They still don't have Heidi back. Heidi's mother, Sue, died in September 2015 on what would have been Heidi's 40th birthday. Her father, Ken, and her sister, Lisa, are still hoping for answers so they can lay Heidi to rest. If you have any information on this case or the possible whereabouts of Heidi Allen, you can call the Oswego County Sheriff's Department at 1-800-724-8477. Thank you for listening to Crime Lines. You can follow me on Facebook by searching Crime Lines Podcast, Twitter at Crime Lines Pod, and Instagram at Crime Lines True Crime. Feel free to follow my personal Instagram at charlienkc. You can also find the show on Patreon and Himalaya Plus, where I post early and ad-free episodes as well as a monthly bonus episode. Crime Lines is produced by Basement Fort Productions, LLC, Visit our website, basementfort.com, for more information, including the sources for each episode. And while you're at it, go listen to Rusty Hinges, a comedic, mystery, true crime, and history show hosted by the one and only Lars and written by me, Charlie.